This is Baffled with David DeRoche, and this is episode five, an exploration of the narrative battle between a governor and a newspaper. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was to explain how journalism works. Too often people fly off the handle of a story simply because they don't like it or because they don't agree with it. That doesn't mean the journalist did anything wrong, so why attack the messenger? Of course, journalists aren't perfect, and another reason for this podcast is to hold them accountable for their mistakes, actual mistakes. But this episode is going to be for people out there who are curious about how journalism actually works. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over a story I came across recently that's worth talking about. There are several things about the story that make it worth discussing. One reason, I have to admit, was my own personal reaction when I first read the story in the New York Times. Real quickly, there was a journalist at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper who learned that Missouri's education department had inadvertently included the social security numbers of tens of thousands of public school teachers in the HTML source code of a state website. Now, the Times story says that the journalist then alerted the state, gave them a few days to fix the problem, then wrote the story. It sounds like good old-fashioned public service journalism, right? Not so fast there, Nellie Bly. It turns out that the state and the governor twisted the story to say that the journalist actually hacked the state website to uncover the social security numbers. So just to clarify, the reporter claims he found the social security numbers in the publicly available HTML code, which anyone can view by hitting F12 on your keyboard or right-clicking a web page and selecting view page source. And the governor flips this and says the journalist hacked the website to see the numbers. As a journalist myself, I was floored by the governor's comment. Not surprised, really, because public figures twist things all the time, but more about how brazenly stupid it is for a person with such power to have such disdain for an act of public service that was protecting about 100,000 public school teachers. He couldn't take the blame, so he shot the messenger. I was incredulous. In fact, I turned to my fiancé with the most self-righteous and incredulous tone I could bellow and said something like, can you believe this guy? He messes up and then says the journalists were hackers because they found his mistake. Of course, it was probably strewn with a few bad words and non sequiturs. It was Sunday morning and I was probably two cups of coffee deep at that point. You get the picture. So the story went into the folder for this podcast and I wanted to talk about it today. So fast forward a bit, preparing for this podcast. What happened next happens to me almost every single time I look deeper into a story, and it's this. The real story is almost always more complicated than it seems at first glance. So this is what we're going to dive into today. We're going to look at how this specific story is likely more complicated than it might seem, but also more broadly, we're going to talk about how this story is a classic example of the never-ending narrative battle. Now, the narrative battle, in case you're wondering, is the ever-present fight for your mind. I know that sounds ominous, the ever-present fight for your mind, but that's really what's going on here in these narrative battles. They're fighting for your perspective, for your vote, for your money. When I say you, I mean me, too, everyone. It's how the elite battle each other for good little soldiers. For the sake of simplicity, we can think of journalists on one side of the fight and public figures like politicians and CEOs on the other side. And if you've been paying any attention these days, the fights have gotten crazier. The stakes are higher. At least they seem to me higher than ever before. 
These days, the fight is often over the very nature of reality itself. Think about the Capitol riots on January 6th, QAnon, claims that the 2020 election was rigged, vaccines and mask mandates. These days, the stakes aren't over simple facts as much as they are over what is actually real. It goes back to that old new wave saying that perception is reality, which of course is not true, but it seems more true today than any other time I've been alive. Stories matter, and if you can control the story, or again, control the narrative, you have a chance at winning the people. Win the people, get the votes, get the money, get the subscriptions, get the retweet, you get the picture. This is the battle that's been taking place every single day. Every single elite player has a stake in controlling the narrative because stories are how we all make sense of the world. And who uses stories more than anyone else and arguably better than anyone else? Journalists, of course. And that's what gives journalists power. It's also what scares the crap out of politicians and CEOs and other elites. Over the years, they've learned to fight back. They employ techniques like astroturfing, where they hire people to create a movement that appears grassroots, but it's actually a funded operation. Kind of like when ExxonMobil's PR company created a video that made fun of Al Gore's climate documentary and Inconvenient Truth. The video appeared the same day the movie came out, and it was made to look like a 29-year-old did it on his own, but actually, it was Exxon's PR firm. Companies and governments also employ something called brand journalism. This is when they spend money telling stories. They'll sometimes even hire ex-journalists so the stories read like a real piece of journalism, when it's actually pure image management. Now, there's, of course, an entire industry built around this. It's called public relations. In fact, Quinnipiac University, where I work, has a PR major, and it's a world-class program, no doubt about it. Now, I'd never say that PR is wholly bad, because it can certainly help in situations where an honest mistake was made, or when something small is taken out of context or blown out of proportion. But the amount of money spent on image management is a direct attempt to do a simple thing, and that's control the narrative. Think about how different political parties interpreted the Mueller report. Republicans used it as a vindication, and Democrats saw it as an indictment. The same damn report. It's all about the spin. And CNN ran with the Democrats' interpretation, and Fox ran with the Republicans. Or what about the September 6th riots at the Capitol? Democrats often used the word insurrection to describe what happened. And many Republicans are now saying it was an act of patriotism. And the partisan news outlets, again, toe the line. Though I do think many outlets have been accurately phrasing this as a riot, not an insurrection, but that's beside the point. Again, if you control the narrative, you control the people. And language is a key part of the narrative. The words they use matter. Fake news, insurrection, stolen election, conspiracy theories. Powerful words. Here's the important part. Anyone fighting to control the narrative is fighting to sell you something. Companies want to sell you things. Governments want to sell you ideologies, like right or left. And journalism wants to sell you values, like empathy or justice. You might not need the things. You might not even believe the ideology. And you might not share those values, or maybe you define them differently. But over time, you get worn down. I know I do. And maybe that's why so few people trust the government or journalists or corporations. We feel manipulated. It's like we're always being sold a bill of goods we don't actually want and certainly don't need. So yeah, I'm going to be fair. I'm trying to sell you something too. I'm not going to lie about it. I'm trying to sell you on the idea that journalists generally do the best they can, but they can be doing a lot better. Which brings us to the big news story I'm going to talk about today, a story we're calling the Journalist's Hacker. 
or maybe we should call it the alleged journalist hacker. Again, language matters, people. Anyway, let's get back to that story that happened in Missouri. This I'm going to read now is from the New York Times story. We'll put a link to it in the episode description. A reporter at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch this week alerted Missouri education officials that a state website that lists teachers' names and certification status had a flaw. The page made the teachers' social security numbers easily available. The Post-Dispatch also notified the teachers' union and waited two days until the state had fixed the problem before publishing an article on Thursday revealing the security problem. To many, it looked like the type of watchdog reporting that many news organizations consider the hallmark of responsible journalism. But Governor Mike Parson of Missouri had a different view. At a news conference on Thursday, he said that he had asked prosecutors and the state highway patrol to investigate the reporter whom he accused of carrying out a, quote, hack of teachers' private information. They were acting against a state agency to compromise teachers' personal information in an attempt to embarrass the state and sell headlines. That was the governor speaking at a press conference. The Times story then goes on to say exactly what I wanted it to say, a complete and total confirmation of my bias, my personal bias as a journalist. It reads, the announcement, meaning the announcement by the governor, infuriated reporters, other news organizations, and media rights groups who said the reporter was being threatened with criminal investigation for doing his job. Quote, the newspaper and the reporter did nothing wrong, end quote, said Mark Masson, executive director of the Missouri Press Association. That's the local journalist organization in Missouri. Quote, it's not uncommon for elected officials to blame the media for instances like this, but in this case, the Post-Dispatch and their reporter should be applauded for uncovering a serious flaw and then alerting the state agency, end quote. Doesn't that just feel good? I mean, I love a good chest thumping, don't you? All right, back to the story. Frank Bowman, a professor of law at the University of Missouri Law School, said that it was difficult to imagine the prosecution of a reporter who alerted state officials to information he discovered by examining a publicly available website. The chances of prosecutors going after Mr. Renaud, the reporter, quote, are between zero and zero, end quote, Professor Bowman said, quote, they're not going to embarrass themselves like this, end quote. And the time story continues. It says, Tony Lavasco, a Republican state representative with a professional background in computers, said the governor's announcement showed, quote, a fundamental misunderstanding of both web technology and industry standard procedures for reporting security vulnerabilities, end quote. And then he picks up again. He said on Twitter, this guy, Tony Lavasco, again, a Republican state representative, tweeted, journalists responsibly sounding an alarm on data privacy is not criminal hacking, end quote. How great are those two sources that the Times found? One guy's like, the chances of this becoming an actual court case are between zero and zero. That's one of those lines that lives forever. And I'd love to hear him say that instead of having to read it. Another great argument for radio and podcasting over print, but I digress. And then you have the Republican lawmaker saying on Twitter that a Republican governor doesn't understand what hacking is. I mean, it's just really great stuff here. Now, I know probably every single journalist and free speech advocate is going to rally behind the journalist here, just like I did. I was all about the story. What an idiot governor, I thought. He has no idea what he's talking about. And this journalist did a public service. But as I mentioned before, when I started digging a little deeper, the actual truth became, or at least it seemed to become, a lot more complicated. Again, it seemed to become this way because it's a little confusing. And I hope to break this down a little bit more. The actual truth might not be more complicated, but it appears that way because of a number of things that we simply do not know. And that's what we're going to talk about. 
For example, there are a few things that remain unclear. Like, exactly how much effort did it take to decipher the social security numbers? Were they jumbled on the page? Were they interspersed with other data? Or were they ordered? To be clear, from what I've read, based on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's reporting and from the New York Times and from the governor's public statements, it seems pretty clear that the newspaper did the right thing. They told the state before writing the story. They gave the state time to fix the problem so the data could not be exploited. Then they wrote the story. And that all seems fairly clear and generally true. And it seems like the right thing. But, and here is the big but, we do not know the exact process that was required to view the social security numbers. We should be told the exact process, or we should at least be told why we can't be told. But we haven't been, either because maybe the process was a little fishy and it might hurt their legal case if it came to that, or maybe it's too boring to describe in a news story, or maybe there's another reason, but the bottom line is we don't know exactly how they got it. And we don't know exactly why they didn't tell us exactly how they got it. Both very important pieces of information, maybe not sexy, but critical, and the information is vital for a simple but very significant reason. The truth remains unclear, and the lack of a clear truth has bifurcated the argument and polarized the discussion. And it's that very thing that gives the governor's seemingly ridiculous allegation any weight at all. Details are missing, and so he's filling in the gaps. He's controlling the narrative. Right now, there are two clear sides, the state supporters who think it this was a hack and journalism supporters who think this was a public service. What I'm wondering is this, is it possible to say that the journalists employed some hacking skills to reveal this vulnerability? Just to reiterate, anyone could view the HTML source code on a web page by hitting F12 or right-clicking and selecting view page source. But again, we don't know exactly how the social security numbers were arranged in the source code. It's not really clear in any of the reporting. Now, the process, according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch story, was as follows. This is directly from the story I'm reading. Quote, In the letter to teachers, Education Commissioner Margie Van Dieven said, quote, An individual took the records of at least three educators, unencrypted the source code from the webpage, and viewed the social security number, SSN, of those specific educators, end quote. In reality, the Post-Dispatch discovered the vulnerability and confirmed that the nine-digit numbers were indeed social security numbers. The paper then told the department that it had confirmed the vulnerability with three educators and a cybersecurity expert. So that's the two paragraphs from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch story. Now, I don't want to dump on the Post-Dispatch here, but they did something that really irks me. After quoting a government employee who alleged the hacking, they started a new paragraph with the phrase, in reality. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot to unpack in a phrase like that. Because it's a phrase that encapsulates the essential narrative battle, which is this, what is reality? I know this sounds like some wacky philosophy 101 writing prompt, but if you sit back and observe current American culture, many of us seem to be living in very different realities. Again, think about those who think the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump and think QAnon is the only source of truth. Or what about those who believe anything the media feeds them? And then there are those of us somewhere in between. I'm part of the latter group. We're naturally skeptical, but the ridiculous and hypocritical level of skepticism that dominates so much discourse these days leaves many of us fried, like me. I guess I digress. It is a battle 
over what is actually real. Whoever thought a journalism podcast would be talking about the perception of reality? I, I promise I didn't eat any mushrooms today. Though I can't say if somebody didn't slip a microdose into my coffee. Who knows these days? Grace, I'm looking over her. She's nodding. No, she's not nodding. <laughs> and that's the point, right? A journalist writes the phrase, in reality, to start a new paragraph. I can't imagine that being an opening line in any other straight news story prior to 2016. And that's part of what makes this Missouri story really interesting. I'd really love to get the Post-Dispatch on here to talk about their process and the governor to talk about his interpretation of the process. I doubt that'll happen because of the potential legal issues, but the invitation remains open. Here's another problem I have with the phrase in reality. The Post-Dispatch responds to a hacking allegation with the phrase in reality, which to me sounds a bit snobbish. It's possible that the education department did not know exactly how the Post-Dispatch got the numbers, which would make sense because I don't know either. Nobody knows, it seems, because it hasn't been reported. Or the opposite's true. The Post-Dispatch told the education department what they did, but they did not tell their readers. I'm not sure what's worse or what's true because, again, it hasn't been reported. Uh, but let's give the Post-Dispatch the benefit of the doubt. Let's say the Post-Dispatch walked the government through exactly how they got the numbers. But in this paragraph, in which you claim to be laying out the actual reality, you do not actually address the Education Department's claim that you, quote, unencrypted the source code from the webpage, end quote. That's the big detail that's never addressed, and that could be considered a form of hacking, again, if they did in fact unencrypt data to get the numbers. And this is where the law and ethics and duties of a journalist collide. If this case does go to court, it'd be super interesting to see how the law is applied. I'm not a lawyer. Obviously, can't you tell by my love of the truth? But seriously, looking at this case and only considering the journalistic ethics, they did all the right things. Even if they did, in fact, employ a little bit of hacking to get the numbers, they didn't do it maliciously. They found the numbers, told the state, gave the state time to fix the problem, and ran the story. That's exactly what they should have done. And my producer, Grace McGuire, and I were talking about digging a little bit more into the ethics, but we're going to save that for another episode. Now, this is especially true if the hacking was so basic that almost anyone could have done it. Maybe the Post-Dispatch had an actual discussion over what they needed to do to view the Social Security numbers and decided it was simple enough to expose a vulnerability, which would ultimately be a public service. Where the ethical line is here, when is the hacking too much to be considered justified? Well, that's for another podcast to ponder. But if the law is interpreted in a different way, that if the Post-Dispatch's intent doesn't matter then that's problematic. And maybe that's why the Post-Dispatch hasn't said more about this. Maybe that's why they didn't directly address the allegation by the Education Department that claimed they unencrypted the source code. Maybe they did. But we don't know because we haven't been told either way. And we haven't been told why we can't be told or why we're not being told. Keep in mind that everything I'm saying is complete conjecture. I really have no idea what actually happened. Everything I'm talking about is a culmination of everything I've read or heard about this. And even though I've spent a decent amount of time digging into the story, I don't have a complete picture. So why are you listening to me? I obviously have no idea what I'm talking about here. But yet you trust what I'm saying? I don't even trust me. But this is what we do in this culture, right? We read a bunch of news and then we talk about it like we know what we're talking about. But seriously, knowing the truth, the whole complicated truth is really hard. It's hard for anyone, and it's especially hard for journalists because we're drawn to the truth that supports our personal biases and values. I've talked about this at length in other episodes, but it also applies to me right now. I only know what I've been told, 
And almost everything I've been told has been told to me through an angle, either a pro-journalism angle or a pro-prosecutorial angle. Or to put it in another way, I can't know what I have not been told, and I only know what I've been told through a specific angle. But let's get back to that in reality phrase, because there's something else about that phrase that just rubs me the wrong way. I've already mentioned how it's a bit snobbish and presumptuous and a reflection of our weird multi-reality times. It's also something else, something that I think turns off a lot of people when it comes to journalism. It's self-righteous. The level of self-righteousness that so many journalists have is kind of astounding. I, I know because I felt it. I felt so emboldened by my own personal sense of justice or democracy, and I didn't care about who I left in my wake. If you got left in my wake, it was because you did something wrong. It was because you were unjust. I was never conscious about this, of course. I tried my best to be unbiased and fair, but it was clear if you had done something wrong, I was going to go after you. I'll listen to you, sure. I'll provide your side for sure, but there was no way in hell I'd ever let you get the last word. I wasn't always like this. Early in my career as a journalist, I was an anxious mess. Every single story I wrote gave me anxiety. My editor was always quick to remind me, we're printing 10,000 copies of this tomorrow. Are you sure you got it right? And that gave me so much anxiety, I can't even tell you. I would lose sleep thinking, did I get that quote right? Did I paraphrase that person's position fairly? Did I dig enough on all sides of the issues? It was exhausting. I can't tell you how many nights I laid in bed, staring at the ceiling, heart pounding, anticipating a phone call the next day by a furious person laying into me about some misquote or mischaracterization. Of course, that actually happened, rarely, but it did. Like There was this one time a school board member called me saying I had printed a quote that he had given me off the record. He might have been right, but to this day, I don't recall doing it. Not consciously, at least, but that doesn't matter. If he really thought that I did that, he would never trust me again. Now, he might have been trying to rattle me, which he certainly did, but still, he would always have a good reason not to trust me, even if he made this up. And that rattled me, that he could make that up and get away with it because I was so green at the time. I was an anxiety-filled reporter for the first few years of journalism. It wasn't until I had invested in a story that developed over years that my internal sense of justice began to take over and my anxiety began to subside. And feeling the power of doing something just and right and good and having that feeling replace anxiety? Well, you can imagine what that does to a person. Of course, I'm only speaking from personal experience. I bet a lot of journalists out there are able to balance that anxiety, which I think is actually a good check on your ego, and balance that anxiety with their sense of justice to produce a fair story. These journalists definitely exist, but I'm not so sure they are the majority. I think too often journalists develop an ego that's rooted in a sense of justice. Now, I've talked about this and how it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can only be a good thing if most of us agree on a basic definition of justice, which I think, again, as I've talked about in episode four, I think it should be defined as the equitable distribution of fairness. But if we're all pursuing journalism based on our own personal sense of justice, we're doing the public a disservice. We're selling them on our personal values rather than a value we've all agreed upon. And saying in reality signals to the reader that you, the journalists, are the key to reality. And by extension, the government agency is detached from reality. Many journalists and news outlets express a similar sense of self-righteousness anytime they're attacked by a government agency or a politician. It's understandable that we would beat our chest in defiance and spout rhetoric that recalls the Constitution and the Founding Fathers and Voltaire and whatever. 
We believe in the work that we do. We stand by it. So when someone attacks it, they attack us. But I'm not so sure the general public sees it that way. Do you? Let me know your thoughts. I'll give you my contact info later. It seems that the public might see our chest thumping as an unnecessary stunt. They might hear the governor of Missouri giving a press conference about a journalist hacker and take the governor's comments very seriously. The governor may be mostly wrong, but it's very possible that he's at least a little bit right. And it's that little bit of right that many people will hang on to. Unless the news outlet addresses its process wholly and completely and with full transparency. Maybe there's an argument to be made that if they disclose the process, they would provide information to hackers on how to hack other systems. But then that would be admitting to hacking. Again, we don't know if this is true or not because we haven't been told the whole truth. The Post-Dispatch may have good reasons, legal ones probably, for leaving out how. But again, we don't know what those reasons are because nobody has reported it. At least I haven't seen it. It's okay to omit certain information, but only if you're going to tell us why you've decided to omit it. Unless there's some truly significant national security reason or safety issue, people should know why you left something out. If you left it out by accident, that's fine. Just be honest about it in another story. The process of journalism remains too opaque. Too often, we expect people to respond on our behalf, just because it seems obvious to us what the response should be. But if you're trying to reach skeptical people, people who read the news and listen to politicians with grains or even mounds of salt, I doubt those people are going to jump to your defense simply because you did your job. You did your job. That's great. Are we supposed to give the custodian a high five every time he dumps your garbage? Are we supposed to get his back when someone yells at him for throwing recycling in the garbage just because we never saw him do it? I don't think so. I don't think anybody should be getting anyone's back just because they did their job or we thought they did their job. If journalists want the public to have our backs, we need to do a better job of explaining our reporting process, telling the public why we don't tell them certain things, and also explaining to the public what we do not know about a story. We're losing trust, and a big reason is because we don't show our work, and we don't explain why when we can't show our work. One of the things I talked about briefly in episode one was the idea that permeates a lot of news outlets, which is this. Editors often tell reporters to report what you know. Or more importantly, report what you can prove that you know. You don't get into what you don't know because it can confuse an audience or it can insinuate something that might be untrue. Of course, those things are possible if you talk about what you don't know. But I tend to think that the unanswered questions are the most important ones. Not always, mind you. But many times they are. First, because it tells the reader that there are questions you'd like to know that you're still looking into, in which case the reader might think, oh man, I was thinking the same thing. Because if you ignore the unanswered questions, people might think you're hiding something by not addressing it. More importantly, including statements about what you don't know lets your audience know an extremely valuable thing about you, which is this. You are not all-knowing. Journalists often present ourselves as these omnipotent experts in all things, but we're really not. Unless we've been on a specific beat for many years, decades even, many stories we write we're learning about as we report them. Think about the coronavirus reporting. How many people who wrote about the coronavirus over the last 18 months have a science background or background in disease or epidemiology? Very few, I'm willing to bet. 
And strangely enough, so much of that reporting has been presented as the final word on the subject, even as the facts continue to change. As the truth has changed around the virus, the reporting has followed the changes, but the old reporting remains, and we rarely hear journalists simply say something like, we don't know if this will be true tomorrow, or we don't know if this is true at all, or we're still trying to figure this out. Now, whenever a story is developing, we do hear all about what we don't know, like during an emergency situation or mass shooting, but that mentality ends with other stories. Journalists might do well to imagine every single story they write as a developing story and be honest about everything you don't know in that moment. Okay, maybe not everything, but at least the things that could serve the story at a deeper level if they were known. Now, sometimes we see these statements and stories, but usually it's only if the unanswered questions are blatantly apparent. We should talk more about what we don't know and why we don't know it. It's okay to not know something. It sets us up as human beings, which is exactly what we are. Unless you're a bot listening to me right now. If if you're a bot, self-destruct. Siri, kill bot. But most journalists are human beings, right? So it's, it's okay then to be human by admitting you don't know something, right? Also, it further establishes journalists as curious seekers of information. And it lets people know that we're on it, that we're not giving up. In the case of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the alleged journalist hacker, I'd be curious to know if there's anything from the reporting of the story that they don't know. From my perspective as an ignorant news consumer, there aren't any glaring unknowns. I mean, there are almost certainly things they know that we as the general public don't know, which I've already talked about. But are there things that they don't know that we also don't know about the story? It's not a trivial thing. What if they really dug into a question but couldn't answer it? What if that question drove this whole story? Again, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm speaking as a complete ignoramus. I'm just curious to know if there was anything they didn't know. And if there were things they didn't know, why didn't they just tell us? So St. Louis Post-Dispatch, open invitation to come on and talk more about this. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for doing the good work. I absolutely think that what you did was exactly what journalism is all about. But maybe next time, just be a little bit more transparent about your process. All right, sentient creatures and bots, maybe that's all the crap I can spew for this episode. So we're up to five episodes now, and we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think. What can I be doing better? What can we be doing better here at Baffled? Is there something I've gotten wrong, or is there something I've missed? I want to know. And I also want to talk to you. I'm kind of getting tired of talking to myself. I feel a little like I'm going crazy. How about we get some of you on here to talk about journalism? You can find me on Twitter at SavingEJ, or you can email me at david.deroche at q.u.edu. That's david.d.e.s.r.o.c.h.e.s at q.u.edu. This is a podcast production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our producer is Grace McGuire. Our social media coordinator is Jillian Catalano. And our videographer is Jake McCarthy. Please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice. And to learn more about this podcast and others, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Baffled with David DeRoche. Until next time.